Well, actually, one thing that we're not sure about, is there something like anti-dark matter or dark anti-matter? So if there is a dark matter particle, does that dark matter particle also have an antimatter counterpart? And then could you have a dark matter particle and a dark antimatter particle annihilate with each other to create some sort of energy signal? And then would these energy signals actually be coming at us from random places in outer space? So if we put out a space probe, could we actually pick up high energy gamma rays or something coming from dark matter, dark antimatter? collisions. So that is something that we're looking for. This is the Way Podcast. The militias needed to have a heads up that I was coming. I personally think they didn't, you know, like in chess. So that's how deep the addiction goes. I've been incarcerated most of my life. Having a conversation with Bill. They've been given no option, either join or die. Snipers, and it was a military. J. Cole came and hung out most of the choir session. I'm standing at the studio glass looking out into the studio. If you want to know more about The Way Podcast, go to podcasttheway.com. This is FM 91.7, WHOS Source at the top of the hour. I'm your host, Bill Trefeski, and like the introduction said, be sure to go to podcasttheway.com. Now, I'm sitting with my guest today, Dr. Miriam Diamond. Here, explain some of your background for the audience. All right. So, hello, everyone. My mission today is to bring you all over to the dark side. So, basically, I am an astroparticle physicist, and I specialize in dark matter searches. And of course, the first question that people ask is, what the heck is dark matter? Really, my job is a combination of Star Wars and Ghostbusters. Star Wars, because obviously we're on the dark side, and Ghostbusters, because really, we are looking for ghostly little subatomic particles that cannot be seen and cannot be touched directly. Uh, and so uh, if you know Ghostbusters, of course, uh, you'll be familiar with the idea of a team of scientists showing up with proton packs on their backs and shooting high energy particle beams uh, and running around with all sorts of crazy detector equipment. Uh, and that is uh, actually a little bit similar to what we do in real life, uh, although we uh, hopefully cause a little bit less chaos on the way. So essentially, our current theories indicate that all matter that we know about so far, in other words, everything that is in the so-called standard model of particle physics, makes up only 5% of the universe. And another 25% is dark matter, and another 70% is dark energy. People often think that dark matter and dark energy must be interconvertible, uh, they are actually not. They are completely separate things. Uh, so when I say that I'm a dark matter specialist, I am not a dark energy specialist. Uh, so we think that dark matter is made up of some new subatomic particle, not included in the standard model, which has very feeble interactions with everything that makes up what we see and feel around us. And so we are essentially on the greatest treasure hunt in the history of humankind to figure out what is this matter stuff that makes up a quarter of the universe. So, yeah, I was watching a video and like we're on a treasure hunt, but the video I saw the TED talk while she's presenting, she said a piece of dark matter could have gone through me right now because it's literally <laughs> like around us. Yep, it probably did actually go through you as we were talking. Uh, so how this works uh, is that our Milky Way galaxy is thought to be sitting in this dark matter halo. And so dark matter particles do attract each other gravitationally. And so they tend to clump around very large astrophysical objects. And of course, the Earth is moving around the sun and the sun is moving through the galaxy. And so we are constantly hurtling through this dark matter halo. And the dark matter particles are everywhere 
around us. They go right through ordinary matter. So they go right through your roof and your walls. And yes, they go right through your body. And it's constantly happening. And you don't even notice it. So I just got a sunburn earlier today from UV rays going through my skin. I'm not gonna get a sunburn from dark matter, right? No, no. You are not. And you are also not going to get sunburn from solar neutrinos, which are constantly coming down at you. What's that now? <laughs> I what's gotta ask. <laughs> yeah, what's a neutrino? So a neutrino is a very mischievous type of subatomic particle, uh, which um, actually a wonderful Canadian astroparticle physicist, Art McDonald, won the Nobel Prize in physics for a few years ago. And so uh, these are particles that are a little bit like dark matter and that they are kind of ghostly particles that go right through most stuff. They are produced, though, in nuclear reactions. And nuclear reactions are what fuel the sun and allow it to shine. And as bright as the sun is in photons, which are the carriers of light, uh, it is uh, even brighter in neutrinos, except that you can't see the neutrinos. They just come from the sun, constantly rain down on you, go right through you. And there are literally trillions of them going through your face every second right now. So are they like dark matter that they don't interact with matter? Uh, so they interact very, very feebly. Uh, so in terms of the fundamental forces of nature, besides gravity, there's the strong nuclear force, the weak nuclear force, and electromagnetism. And neutrinos interact only via the weak force. And as you can tell by its name, it's, well, very weak. I saw there was like the four forces in nature. And one thing that makes gravity unique is it's the only one that lacks this description from the perspective of small particles. Yeah, so in the standard model, each of the other three forces has a carrier particle. So the strong force is carried by gluons. The weak force is carried by weak gauge bosons, and electromagnetism is carried by photons. We have a hypothesis that gravity is carried by something that we very creatively named the graviton, but uh, we uh, do not actually have any proof of that. That's still just a theory at this point. So it's like for equations, like, all right, we can incorporate it so we have an understanding, but it's not confirmed yet. That's right. What about dark matter? Is that confirmed yet? Or is it just fitting into the theories? Like, how do we know it exists? So we do not know for sure that it exists. We have a lot of evidence that it exists. But actually, that evidence comes mostly from astrophysics, not from particle physics. And it comes from basically observing the behavior of very large stellar bodies. Uh, so things like how stars move within spiral galaxies and how galaxies clump together into clusters and then how clusters tend to clump to form the large scale structure of the observable universe. And then we can also look at things like patterns in the cosmic microwave background radiation. And all of these pieces of evidence fit together very nicely if you hypothesize that there is some extra matter out there which we cannot see with any of our current telescopes or our space probes, but that is creating a gravitational field that is altering the motions and the behavior of these very large bodies. Finding dark matter on Earth, though, is quite a challenge uh, because, of course, the the gravitational force that is emitted by, say, a clump of dark matter depends on the size of that clump, or more precisely, the mass energy of it. And um, a stellar body like a galaxy uh, has a hugely uh, greater gravitational field than, you know, anything we have access to here on Earth. And so the gravitational effects are evident on astrophysical and cosmological scales, but not in earthbound laboratories. Okay. So we said earlier that dark matter, like the particles can go through me or you or just through the walls right now, but yeah. they have this gravity force, which is sort of what holds the galaxies together. So how do they interact with say like the earth has a gravitational force with the moon. So these particles going through us, is the earth somewhat keeping them contained or do they just 
not interact with like our matter at all. Uh, so yeah, actually the Earth's gravitational field would have a tiny little effect on them. The thing that you have to remember about gravity is that it is actually extremely weak compared to the other forces. And if that kind of seems counterintuitive, think about the fact that you can take a fridge magnet, which is tiny, and you can use it to pick up something like a paperclip and the magnetic force from that tiny fridge magnet is easily defeating the gravitational pull of the entire earth on that clip. Wait. <laughs> yeah, Wait. so yeah, so the fact that you can pick something up with a magnet means that the electromagnetic force from that magnet is beating out all of the earth's gravity that's oh. pulling the object down. Yeah, so so it really takes a a huge amount of mass energy to generate a large enough gravitational field to say actually contain a particle within an area or within an orbit. Gotcha. Okay. This is a bit of a theory I heard way back. It relates somewhat, so I'll like bring back dark matter after. But have you heard the theory that gravity is sort of like time interacting in the sense that the time is different with our feet compared to our heads when there's a size of mass around? Uh, so, so, so that goes to general relativity, which has a lot of weird effects in it. Weird by our standards, because in everyday life, we do not generally encounter things that are massive that travel close to the speed of light or things that have really, really strong gravitational fields. So to us, it seems weird. But... Um, Basically, the way that general relativity works is that time is just another dimension that you tack on to the three dimensions of space. So you get this four-dimensional space-time. And so you're actually not just traveling through space at any moment. You're traveling through space-time. And this has some strange consequences, like there's this overall cosmic speed limit, which is the speed of light. And the faster that you move through space, the slower you move in time. And similarly, if you're in a strong gravitational field, this actually affects how fast your clock seems to tick for you. Uh, but observers in different reference frames can have time ticking at different rates, and there's no um, simultaneity necessarily anymore between different observers. Uh, so your feet are slightly closer to the center of the earth than your head. Uh, so they are in a stronger gravitational field. And so sure enough, uh, time ticks at a different rate at your feet than at your head. And you actually have to take into account a relativistic correction when you bounce signals off of GPS satellites, uh, because the ticking of time up at the satellite um, which is only experiencing a small amount of the Earth's gravity compared to what we experience here on the surface, um, that tiny little offset in timing would be enough to completely mess up our GPS location systems because they rely on basically the transit time of signals from the surface to satellites and back. Wow. What, uh, what difference just from the Earth to the satellites? Uh, well, it depends exactly where the satellites are, but um, it will translate into the GPS systems being off by tens of meters in locating you. Okay. That's not yeah. too bad, but it makes uh, sense. Well, it's enough to get you lost in the middle of downtown Toronto, let me put it that way. Oh, wow. So could be too bad. <laughs> <laughs> and that's yeah. same theory. Well, what you just explained, that's why say if I was on Jupiter and I was somehow able to survive, then I came back to Earth, or say I was also in another scenario, going in Earth's direction versus going away. In both those scenarios, what you explained is why I would age differently than somebody just sitting here at Earth for the past 10 years or so. Yeah, so you're talking about these twin paradox things that happen yeah. in these thought experiments where there's twins and one of them goes off as an astronaut on some space you know, some space odyssey for 50 years of Earth time and then comes back. But actually, time has ticked slower for them because they were traveling near the speed of light or whatever in their rocket ship. And so they come back and they have aged less than everybody else here on Earth. And they finally, um, 
you know, they, 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 they find that their twin is much older than they are and that um, everything is out of sync. So outside of the galaxy, is there spaces of just pure nothingness or is every pure nothingness where dark matter lies? So no matter where you are, you're surrounded by matter or dark matter? Ah, so that's a very good question. Uh, first of all, it depends exactly on how you define nothingness. Um, there's a lot of space that is nothing interesting in that it is almost completely empty, but like there's one speck of dust in you know several kilometers of mostly empty space. Um, and so basically because dark matter does feel the gravitational force, it clumps in a way that the large clumps of dark matter tend to follow the clumps of visible matter or more like vice versa. Actually, the clumps of visible matter act as sort of tracers to where the dark matter mostly is. Um, but there's these sort of dark matter halos that extend past the edge of where the visible matter extends in, for example, our Milky Way. So if you travel out to the end of our galaxy and you get past where most of the visible matter is, there will be a while where you're still traveling through the dark matter halo. And then you get to a while of almost entirely empty space with just some dust in it. And even in that, which we call the vacuum, uh, even if there's no matter in it, it is still permeated by what we call quantum fields. And most of these quantum fields average out to zero on large scales, but on very, very tiny scales, so I'm talking like subatomic scales, there's actually this foam or this froth of little particles popping in and out of existence. And this is a consequence of the uncertainty principle of quantum mechanics, essentially. So just to make sure I got that part right, like, I guess, again, pure nothingness, but quotation marks, nothing out of, yeah, quotations, heavy quotations. Uh, yep. Something, two particles or what you just mentioned will form and then delete each other in like an instant. Yes, yes. So what will happen is a particle, antiparticle pair will appear out of nowhere and then they will annihilate with each other and they will disappear back into this quantum foam. It's kind of a big question, like hard to answer, I bet. But like, why does that happen? <laughs> uh, that's just the fundamental structure of the universe, according to quantum field theory. And that's in quantum field theory. That's how we know it happens, too. Because like, is that like dark matter where we're, we really think it's true, but we don't know for certain? There are some things about it that we don't know for certain, but there's a lot that we've actually been able to probe about the quantum vacuum at, for example, super colliders like Large Hadron Collider, where we pack an extremely large amount of energy into a very small area. And we are then able to actually coax particles out of the quantum foam, essentially. Uh, and we are able to look at things like uh, so-called vacuum polarization, uh, which is that if you have an electron and a positron that pop out of the vacuum, you can actually pull one in one direction and pull one in the other. And uh, this actually relates to the famous discovery of the Higgs boson at the Large Hadron Collider, uh, because the Higgs is the one field that we found so far that has what we call a non-zero vacuum expectation value. So that means that everywhere there's this Higgs field that permeates everything and its average value is not zero. Uh, and the fact that that is not zero means that, uh, that any of the massive standard model particles traveling through the Higgs field, that's basically where they get their mass from. So the Higgs field is this field that encompasses the whole universe and it's what gives these different particles different masses? Yes, that's right. Yeah. I'm not sure encompasses is the right word. It's more like it's present throughout the entire universe. And yes, particles, when they travel through it, they acquire mass. Gotcha. I heard there's Higgs field and then there's Higgs bosons. Yeah. So I guess like different parts of the universes have different Higgs values. So. No, not really. A Higgs boson is simply an excitation of the Higgs field. Any particle is just an excitation of its field. All right. Also, um, what does excitation mean? 
excitation um excitation <laughs> yeah that, that 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 sounds like something great that would happen at a party after quarantine is lifted or something but no uh so basically every field is quantized so it cannot come in just any number uh, it has to come in little packets and so a particle can be thought of as, as one tiny little packet or one quantum of the field uh, so when a field is excited, it basically means that you form one quantum of it, and that little quantum pops out of the quantum foam. Makes sense enough. <laughs> <laughs> makes sense enough, yeah. yeah. If you've been sitting in lockdown drinking for a little while, it'll make a lot more sense. Noted. And uh, with some states legalizing weed, maybe just like a joint. <laughs> yeah, 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 sure. That would that would probably help. Maybe some magic mushrooms. Exactly. Uh, and so if we have these different Higgs bosons, are there different dark matters that can be affected in each boson or is dark matter the same? Okay, so so far, we've only discovered one type of Higgs boson. Okay. There may be actually multiple other types of Higgs bosons that we haven't found yet. That's one of the things that Large Hadron Collider is looking for in its next run. And it is possible that there is more than one type of subatomic particle that falls into this category of dark matter. Actually, when you think about the fact that the standard model, which makes up only 5% of the universe, has several different types of subatomic particles in it. And then we've got this other dark stuff that you know, has um, probably something like four times as much stuff in it, it would make sense that there would be different types of particles in the dark stuff also. Um, and if these different types of dark matter particles have different masses, then that would indicate probably that they have different strengths of interaction with the Higgs boson. Gotcha. And also bring it back a bit. What is the standard model that's used? Ah, standard model. Okay, so as I said before, there's the three non-gravitational forces. Uh, so that's the strong nuclear force, the weak nuclear force, and electromagnetism. Then there are matter particles called quarks. And there are six different flavors of quarks. And because physicists are weird when it comes to naming things, we call them up, down, strange, charmed, bottom, and top. Okay. <laughs> yeah, why not? Um, and these quarks all have different masses. It is only the lightest two flavors of quarks, so up and down, that make up almost all of the matter that we see around us every day. So for example, protons are two up quarks and a down quark, and neutrons are two down quarks and an up quark, bound together by gluons by the strong force. And so then there's another group of matter particles called leptons. Uh, and uh, the most famous of these is the familiar electron. And it has a heavier version called a muon, and then an even heavier version called a tau. And each of these three leptons are charged under the electromagnetic force and they have a neutrino associated with them. And neutrinos are these mischievous particles that I mentioned earlier that do not have electromagnetic charge and they only interact via the weak force. And so overall we have this zoo of quarks and leptons and carrier particles. Some of those are what make up dark matter like the not the up the down not the one you just mentioned for the electron like the nothing other... nothing in the standard model accounts oh. for dark matter as far as we know so we think it's some new particle that is not yet in the standard model um, and then of course the latest sort of cornerstone that makes the whole standard model work is the higgs boson uh, which um, which we found several years ago now at Large Hadron Collider. Uh, hopefully we're on a roll of new particle discovery now. Uh, and so we'll find hopefully the dark matter particles soon, I hope. <laughs> Sounds good. So Higgs boson, latest thing to be in the standard model. But once we figure that out, that will join in the standard model. Yeah. All right. What about, I saw the word supersymmetry come up a lot. Oh, yeah. Can you explain a little bit about like what that is? 
Sure. So supersymmetry is a theory that proposes that for every one of the particles that we know of in the standard model, there is a supersymmetric partner for it. Uh, so a supersymmetric partner is not the same as antimatter. Uh, we do know that each of the standard model particles has an antimatter counterpart. And when a particle meets its antimatter counterpart, they annihilate into pure energy. Oh, so is that earlier on when like uh, mass was for formed out of nothingness, it was matter, antimatter, and those two are yeah. what became nothingness, okay. Sort of, sort of, except there was a tiny bit more matter than antimatter for some reason at the very beginning of the universe, and we still don't quite know why. And so when almost all of the matter annihilated with antimatter, there was just a teeny bit of matter left over, and that's what everything we see around us today is made up of. But uh, anyway, uh, so there's these antimatter partners that we already know about, uh, and then there's a the theory that there's also a supersymmetric partner, and we give these cute names. So for example, an electron would have a selectron partner and a photon would have a photino partner. And under most theories, the supersymmetric partners are expected to be much more massive than the standard model versions. And we've been looking at places like Large Hadron Collider to try to actually make these supersymmetric partners pop out of the quantum foam through our very energetic particle collisions. And so far we have not found any. Uh, but one of the things that make this theory really attractive is that then some of the lowest mass uh, of these supersymmetric particles could actually be the dark matter. Gotcha, okay. And when I was looking at supersymmetry, I found that we have what we have in the standard model or well, what we know of, but then I heard they have cousin particles that, is that what could be dark matter or are there more cousin particles that we don't know of yet? Yeah, so the cousin particles are, are I guess, what they're calling the supersymmetric particles. And then the lowest mass supersymmetric particles could conceivably be the dark matter. And the term that we often use for this type of dark matter is WIMP, which is short for weakly interacting massive particle. Okay, then. If I'm saying it right, the Hadron Collider? Yes. So is that some laboratory way off that's tr literally trying to create some antimatter or dark matter or like something crazy? <laughs> um, does a lot of crazy stuff, yeah. Uh, so it is located at CERN in Geneva on the border between France and Switzerland. And we call it LHC for short, Large Hadron Collider. And it is the most powerful super collider in the world. And so it smashes proton beams together where it first runs the protons round and round and round in rings, and they get faster every time they go around until eventually they're going very, very, very close to the speed of light. And then at four points in the ring, they smash into each other. And the hope is that when we cram that much energy into a very small space, we can make things like really heavy particles come out. And we can then catch them in very sophisticated particle detectors that we build around these four interaction points. Gotcha. Okay, okay. And have they made any like breakthroughs yet or anything? They found the Higgs boson, yeah. Okay, that sounds good. And so... You have matter, antimatter, and then like dark matter. How's dark matter and antimatter? Do they interact at all? Uh, well, actually, one thing that we're not sure about is, is there something like anti-dark matter or dark antimatter? So if there is a dark matter particle, does that dark matter particle also have an antimatter counterpart? And then could you have a dark matter particle and a dark antimatter particle annihilate with each other to create some sort of energy signal? And then would these energy signals actually be, you know, coming at us from random places in outer space? So if we put out like a space probe, um, could we actually, you know, pick up high energy gamma rays or something coming from dark matter, dark antimatter collisions? So that is something that we're looking for. I'm trying not to sound like a Joe Rogan or something, but it, it just blew my mind a bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so you, got, yeah. you got this thing, dark matter, we can't see and stuff. Now we got this anti-dark matter, possibly that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Well, I guess a little theory, but dark matter could possibly explain parallel universes. Is that true? 
Oh, there's a lot of misconceptions out there about parallel universes, and it depends what kind of parallel universe you're talking about. Um, so there's a few different versions of parallel universe theories. So there's one version in which essentially our universe is like this little bubble that's been blowing up ever since the Big Bang. But maybe we are just one bubble in this whole sort of sink full of bubbles where the sink is a multiverse and there are other universes expanding in other bubbles. Uh, and then there's another version uh, which is uh, known as the string theory multiverse where basically according to string theory, which is an attempt to make a so-called theory of everything that combines quantum physics and general relativity and the standard model and gravity, you know, everything that we know about into a single unified framework. And then of course it should also account for dark matter and dark energy because it's a theory of everything. Uh, and so in the string theory version of the multiverse, um, all of the basic parameters in our universe, so things like what is the mass of each of the subatomic particles, what is the coupling to each of the forces, is basically arbitrary. And there could be an infinite number of universes out there where in each universe, those fundamental constants actually take on completely different values. So fundamental constants, as in like, instead of gravity, they have some other crazy thing, or instead of magnetism, some other crazy thing. Yeah, so, well, sort of, yeah. So instead of electromagnetism, they could have, you know, some other dark force, and, you know, their universe could be dominated by antimatter instead of matter. And it could be that the proportion of dark matter compared to what we call regular matter is completely different. And it could be that, you know, they have electrons and muons, but there are no taus, and the electrons are really, really heavy or something. Is it possible that earlier on you said, after the Big Bang, there's more matter than antimatter. We don't know why. Is it possible that there's another universe that has more antimatter? Absolutely. Then... <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely possible. Right. Um, so then when you talk about dark matter and parallel universes, in that case, it's not really that dark matter explains parallel universes, but it's that in parallel universes, dark matter could, you know, have a have a completely different you know, a completely different relationship to what we would call normal matter, or there would be a completely different amount of it or something like that. And then there's the idea of parallel universes that comes from a completely different point of view, uh, which is the so-called many worlds theory of quantum physics. And under this theory, um, well, basically in quantum physics, there are probabilities uh, that take the form of what we call wave functions. And what we would consider a particle classically in quantum physics is actually both a particle and a wave, and it is described by a wave function. So it does not have, for example, a definite position and a definite momentum at any time. It is in sort of this smeared out state where when you then observe it, there are different probabilities of it appearing in different places. And according to the many worlds theory, every time you observe a quantum system and one of these possibilities actualizes, you actually split off alternate universes where in each alternate universe, it's a different possibility that happened. Is that like something as simple as what I've heard in the past where you're deciding like, oh, do I want to start with my left foot or my right foot? And then yeah. that. So, so there's an alternate universe in which you've started with your other foot. Yeah. That's just why I find it crazy because like, Okay, so there's infinite choices a person can make. And then yeah. of those infinite choices, then you have infinite of those. And then like those like, inf and yep. And it's not just choices that people make. Um, it's, you know, completely inanimate systems of particles like molecules floating around in the air. You know, does the molecule travel this direction or that direction? Isn't everything sort of already determined by physics, like an air molecule? say no ways around it isn't it already determined that 500 years from now it will end up exactly over like in, in that a spot? in a classical theory yes in a quantum theory no in a quantum theory while that quantum system is not being observed so it's not interacting with anything it's actually in a superposition of multiple states at once so it is over here and over there at the same time and it is taking 
you know, one path which goes to the apartment building on your left and another path which takes it out to the Andromeda galaxy is actually taking all those paths at the same time. And it's not until it is observed or it interacts with another system that one of those possibilities actualizes and the rest of them don't. So then if you wait 500 years uh, until anything observes the thing, um, yeah, it could be way over on one side of our galaxy or it could be way out in some other galaxy by then. Gotcha. Yeah. And knowing like what you know, do you believe that this is the likely reality or do you think it's kind of just like a fun theory? Uh, so this is one so-called interpretation of quantum physics. There are other interpretations that I would say are equally valid because they all predict the same experimental results when we actually go to observe something. So we really have no way of proving which of these interpretations is correct. And it kind of, to me, becomes more of a philosophy issue than a pure physics issue. Uh, physics to me is very much about, you know, what we can actually observe in the laboratory and what theories can we prove or what, which ones can we distinguish from each other. And so as soon as you go into these interpretation things, um, you certainly stray out of my field as an experimentalist. Um, I do have a background in theory. That's actually uh, what I did my master's degree in. But then I went over to experiment. Um, so um, I tend to sort of not deal so much with, with theoretical interpretation kinds of things now. And as for whether that interpretation is, 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 is actually sort of how the universe works on some sort of more fundamental level, I'm, I'm honestly not even going to speculate about. Um, it's, it's, it's something that because I don't have access to any data one way or the other, um, I really, I don't have an opinion on it. Makes sense. Cause I'm pretty much asking you, how does the entire universe and everything work? Which is like the basic knowledge. Like if somebody knew we'd, we'd all know by now. <laughs> well, I, well, I mean, I can tell you the answer is 42. It's absolutely 42. I feel like I've heard that number again. What does that mean? Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. The answer to life, universe, and everything in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is 42. At a zero at the end, and a lot of stoners would agree. <laughs> 420, weed number. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a whole different thing. And and don't get me started on Elon Musk and his smoking weed on podcasts. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. Although Elon Musk simulation theory. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, so actually, that's another interpretation in a way uh, that what we see as probabilities are actually generated by some supercomputer that's running some simulation and that you know our lack of access to a hidden variable that's controlling the wave function collapse is is actually just a reflection of our inability to get to whatever computer or hardware of some sort is running the simulation there are definitely a lot of people in Silicon Valley who are very into this whole simulation hypothesis. Uh, some really, really hardcore believers in it. And there's been a lot of science fiction written about it. It's a fun thing to think about. But again, from my point of view, if it's by definition impossible to access the machinery that's running the simulation, and if it's impossible to distinguish whether or not we're in a simulation, then you know I don't I don't really have anything to say about it. I'll bring it like back to dark matter again. Yeah. <laughs> but first, I want to say like simulation theory. I heard that to have a supercomputer that can operate all of this, it wouldn't like it still wouldn't even really be possible. But a way to find a loophole is all the matter we see, like the table under me or like behind the walls, anything that's out of our vision, theoretically is like empty space with nothing inside it. So when you say you break a table, then the computer would show an inside of a broken table because that's necessary. And but then earlier on, you were mentioning that a particle isn't determined until we look at it. I kind of forget, but do you remember why, like what you said something along the lines of, until we look at a particle, it's not determined where it ends up. Yeah, so I was saying that when a quantum system is not being observed, it's in a superposition of multiple states. And then when it is observed, the superposition collapses. Exactly. So simulation, maybe when it gets observed, that's when it collapses because then you're observing the thing. 
<laughs> and then, uh, well, so the other thing that's complicated when you consider the simulation hypothesis is there's this whole idea of quantum computing versus classical computing. And the idea behind quantum computing is that you can take advantage of the fact that quantum systems are in multiple states at once, and you can basically run a whole bunch of calculations simultaneously in different states at once. And then this gives you an exponentially more powerful computational device than anything that's classical. And so the fact that you cannot simulate the universe seemingly on a classical computer, well, then there's a the question of, can you simulate it on some sort of quantum computer? I don't remember if I'm remembering this thing correctly, but for a quantum computer, wouldn't you need the power of like a sun or something to operate? <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> the quantum technologies that we currently have now are, are limited by a lot of engineering considerations. That is kind of separate from the issue of what is possible in theory. And so if in theory you could use every single subatomic particle in the universe as part of some computer that has as perfect as possible a computational efficiency, then you know what kind of computational power could we get out of the entire observable universe? Uh, that's actually a question that you can study that is within the realm of physics. It's not the kind of physics that I do, but 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 there are quantum information specialists who do study that kind of question. Um, but then that's entirely separate from engineering considerations of, well, with anything that we could actually build using technology that we have either now or in the foreseeable future, there's a lot of energy that goes to waste and a lot of inefficiencies that are there and, you know, materials that are not perfectly fabricated and so on and so forth. And so then how much power does it take to run a practical but very inefficient compared to what the ideal system would be becomes a very different question. And to power a really huge quantum supercomputer with current technologies, I could easily see you needing some ridiculously big power source like a Dyson sphere around the entire sun or something. But that's kind of like asking, well, if I want the power that's currently in my laptop, how big a system of vacuum tubes would I need? You know? Oh, okay. Okay. Well, that just, uh, it's just crazy. I'll just figure out how to harness the power of the universe real quick. Let me just, I'll be back in an hour. <laughs> yeah. 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 Just like do some quantum computation in your brain on that concept. Yeah. Yeah. Easy, easy. Now, before I actually ramp back to dark matter, I, I'm also curious, the number 42, why does that explain <laughs> the universe? <laughs> uh, well, according to Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, um, the entire planet Earth is a giant supercomputer that's being run by an alien race that is trying to find the answer to life, the universe, and everything. Um, and so their first attempt to get this answer from a supercomputer simply yielded the answer 42. And they had no idea why. And then they realized, well, they hadn't asked it the question properly. So they need to build another supercomputer to, to, to ask the question. And that other supercomputer is, is Earth. And then unfortunately, the entire planet got vaporized by another alien race called the Vogons right before these transdimensional beings were about to get their answer to what is the question of life, the universe, and everything. Oh, so it's like a fiction fun story. It is a completely <laughs> fictional story. The number 42 has has no particular significance in math or, or science or anything. It's just something the author grabbed out of his head, but it's kind of become famous amongst us nerds. <laughs> I've heard it here and there. I'm going to actually have to pick up that book. But. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is fabulous. I would say the best part about it is the infinite improbability drive. And what's that? <laughs> it's 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 a cute way of playing with the rules of quantum physics uh, to basically say that even if something is incredibly improbable, you know, if you have enough wave function collapses in the universe, eventually you're bound to get at least one that collapses in in an incredibly improbable way. And I'm not gonna I'm not gonna ruin it all for you, but uh, the the idea is to power a vessel using an infinite improbability drive. All right, I'm gonna have to look that up. But uh, what's the name of it again? 
Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Okay, okay. So, yeah, all right. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And it was originally a book, but there's also a film version. Oh, good. That way I don't have to read. <laughs> nah, I, like I would still say you should read the book because the book is better, but okay. <laughs> all right. I'll definitely have to do that. All right. So one last like dimensional thing, but with string theory, I heard it results in 10 dimensions. Uh, yeah, yeah. 10 spatial dimensions and one time dimension. That's right. So you have like one dimension, two dimension, three dimension, four dimensions time, but for string theory to work out, which I also heard string theory results in a lot more questions or the more you dive into it, not the more inaccurate it is, but it does help give information while it's still also becoming farther from being proven. Yeah. uh, As one of my colleagues says, it's like an onion. The more you peel, the more you cry. But uh, yeah, so basically the thing with all of these extra dimensions is they are thought to be curled up on an extremely tiny scale. So tiny that we've been unable to observe it directly. And uh, there's a very fancy structure in which they are curled up uh, called a Calabi-Yau manifold. And the structure of this manifold ends up determining a bunch of basic properties about the universe. So things like the different types of subatomic particles. And if you arrange the manifold just a little bit differently, you get essentially a universe with very different physical properties. And so the idea is that in different areas of the string theory multiverse or or in different parallel universes, as some people like to call them, you get very different physical laws, and, but then it means that you cannot really predict a priori what the physical properties of our universe is going to be because we just as easily could find ourselves in one of the other universes with a completely different set of properties. So then it kind of goes from a theory of everything to a theory of anything in a way, and that you know there's some universe in which you know some very different configuration is possible, but there's no way to predicts from very first principles, you know, whether whether that's our universe or not. So that's where things get a little bit messy. Okay. And do the farther like dimensions, do they sort of explain that like the fifth dimension, sixth dimension, 10th dimension? Uh, Yeah, so it's a little bit complicated to translate um, how the how the size and the shape and the wrapping of those dimensions influences the physical laws. But basically what happens is that fundamental particles are no longer little point-like things. They're actually tiny little strings, which is where string theory gets its name. And those strings can actually be loops because uh, a loop is basically just a string with the two ends connected to each other, right? Um, or they can still be open with, with the two ends flapping around. Um, and so then those strings can do fun things like wrap around the extra dimensions, and they can actually wrap around multiple times. And then they also can vibrate in the extra dimensions. If you think about a guitar string, when you pluck it, there's different modes in which it vibrates in our three dimensions, but then it could also potentially be vibrating in like the other five curled up extra dimensions. And so basically the different vibrational modes and the winding modes of the strings correspond to the different types of subatomic particles. Okay. <laughs> Very loosely yeah. speaking without the yeah. math. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Makes enough sense. Sure. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, sure. So then also there's black holes everybody's heard of and do black holes absorb dark matter at all? Like, Yeah. Yeah. So basically the idea is that anything that is subject to the gravitational force would get pulled into a black hole. Uh, So yeah, uh, there would be dark matter that gets pulled in there the same way that regular matter got pulled in there. Wow. So even if you had a black hole and there was no matter being absorbed into it, it was just sitting there by itself, theoretically, it would still possibly grow bigger if there were clumps of dark matter around it just being absorbed into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in fact, there is a theory of of what's called primordial black holes, that maybe at least part of what we currently think is dark matter was actually black holes that were formed in the very, very, very early times of the universe, like right after the Big Bang. And these black holes have just been kind of sitting around, floating around space ever since then. Gotcha. Okay. 
Yeah, uh, but then actually the other thing about black holes is that um, if they sit sort of in the middle of nowhere and there's no matter, either dark or visible around anymore for them to pull in, they do actually evaporate eventually uh, through this process called Hawking radiation. Uh, so they do have to pull in some matter in order to stay alive, essentially. So they're not as much of a secure, like once you're past that horizon, you're trapped in there, like some, like what evaporates, I guess. So basically what happens is that um, if you form a, a particle-antiparticle pair out of the quantum foam, just on the event horizon of the black hole, and the and the members of that pair go in opposite directions such that one gets sucked in and the other particle just barely escapes. And when that particle escapes, it actually pulls a little bit of the black hole's energy out with it. And basically all of these little escaping particles uh, form what we call Hawking radiation, and it actually has a temperature. Uh, it's a perfect so-called thermal black body. And so that means that it doesn't really contain any information. Um, everything's been completely scrambled. So if you threw an encyclopedia uh, into the black hole, um, as far as we know, uh, the, you know, the Hawking radiation that comes out contains none of the information that you put in. So then what happened to the information? This is known as the black hole information paradox, actually. Uh, and we still, we still don't, don't entirely understand that. But we do know that black holes have a lifetime uh, and that they grow when they suck matter in. Uh, but they uh, but they shrink if they if they don't suck stuff in, and you can actually make very very tiny black holes, like possibly on the atomic or subatomic level, that would vanish very very quickly. Because of that same Hawking's radiation. Yeah. Yeah. And like the information gets absorbed and sucked up. Let's say what you mentioned happens, and a piece of uh, antimatter escapes. If enough of that escapes, would you eventually that encyclopedia? Like, could you eventually? form another encyclopedia or would it be like a encyclopedia with no words in it because the information is gone <laughs> well that's we we really don't know that's that that's why we call it the information paradox we really don't know yet um this also isn't an experiment that we can run on an earth laboratory for obvious reasons and we can't you know directly observe a black hole even if we did you know send some crazy mission out into space and you know throw something into a black hole um as things get closer and closer to the event horizon of the black hole there's more and more time distortion so they actually appear to be moving slower and slower and so from our point of view we never actually see them cross the event horizon uh, and so even when we get an image of the event horizon of the black hole it's really just an image of the matter that's really 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 close to falling into it but we never actually see it fall in and that's because of like way back in the beginning when we talked about how time, uh, time general space. relativity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a black hole has has an extreme warping of space time, the most extreme warping of space time that we know of. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And that just makes me think too. Like at the end of the universe, I don't know if it's a theory, but like, what if black holes consume everything and then all yeah. that info leaves? One possible end to the universe. Yeah. So there's actually multiple plausible scenarios for how the universe can end. Um, so one is a so-called thermodynamic heat death of the universe, where basically the expansion of the universe continues to accelerate and things get colder and colder and everything gets farther and farther apart from each other. And yeah, one of the final stages in that is that basically everything that is left in sort of clumps or, or, or in aggregations of matter ends up, you know, falling into black holes. And these supermassive black holes just kind of sit around and they get farther and farther from each other and drift away. And then over epochs and epochs of cosmic time, they eventually evaporate. And then there's just nothing after that. So that is one potential ending of the universe. And that just reminded me too. So I heard that the galaxies as the universe expands and it accelerates, the galaxies go farther away. And if we were alive billions, trillions of years down the road, we wouldn't even know any other galaxies or anything outside of our own galaxy exists. Yes, that's right. Yeah, because everything would go yep. so far beyond the edge. So why yep. isn't dark matter like containing it or... Ah, so that's actually a very good question. So basically that comes down to what is the balance between dark energy, dark matter, and space-time curvature in the universe? 
And so I mentioned earlier that dark energy makes up 70% of the universe and matter, both dark and regular, makes up, quote, only 30%. And so matter gravitates, but dark energy sort of anti-gravitates. And I say sort of because, well, what it's doing is not exactly anti-gravity, but it is essentially making space-time expand on a fundamental level. Uh, so it is it is ripping everything apart from everything else. And so the fact that right now um, we see that dark energy is dominating over dark matter and the expansion of the universe is accelerating. So this is basically just, just telling us that dark energy is winning the tug of war, so to speak. If, on the other hand, we had a universe where there was much more matter than there was dark energy, you could have a situation where the universe ended up collapsing back in on itself eventually because of the gravitational pull. It just, it just basically collapses um, back into you know, what, what existed at the Big Bang. So as this uh, universe expands, is more dark matter and dark energy too like being created at the ends or even in middle parts? <laughs> Uh, so this is actually something that we investigated for quite a long time. Um, the Big Bang Theory had a competitor at one point called the steady state theory, which basically said that matter and energy was constantly being created in the cosmic void. Uh, it turns out that as far as we know, that's not true. Um, so basically, as the universe expands, the density of dark energy remains the same, but the matter gets more and more diluted. So in other words, we don't have any more matter being created. And so the expansion, it looks like from what we can see right now is, 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 is probably just going to keep getting faster and faster because the matter is going to keep getting diluted by this dark energy whose density remains constant. Gotcha. And is that going to result in like the universe ripping or like the big crunch even at the end or something like that? It's, 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 it's theories, yeah, I mean, it would result in something like thermodynamic heat death or 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 a big rip or or whatever you want to call it. Probably not the universe collapsing back in on itself. Probably just, just continuing to expand at a more rapid rate forever until yeah. everything tears apart on a subatomic level. Gotcha. So at least five more years, at least like five. Years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we'll be out of lockdown by the time that happens, maybe. <laughs> oh, perfect. We get out of lockdown and then the universe crunches and rips and does all that stuff. Great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, technically speaking, actually, the universe could could destabilize at any time, we think, um, due to something called vacuum decay. So this is a nice, cheerful prospect that is because of the Higgs boson, essentially. Um so we think that the Higgs boson, well, we think that the Higgs field is only meta stable. We came to this conclusion after we created the Higgs boson at LHC and did some studies on it. And so when I say it's meta, it's meta stable, uh, it means that it, that, that it is staying in its current state for a very long time, long on cosmic scales, like probably since very shortly after the Big Bang. Uh, but but technically, at any time, it could quantum tunnel into a completely different state. And uh, this would also basically destroy the universe at the subatomic level. Hey, okay, you must enjoy your work. It's fun stuff. It is fun stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And last dark matter related question. So I understood you have two things. You have hot dark matter and cold dark matter. Hmm. My understanding is hot dark matter is dark matter moving almost at the speed of light. Yeah, that's right. And cold dark matter is like stationary. So like, what's the difference between the two? Why are they categorized separately? And do they have impacts? Uh, well, uh, cold dark matter makes really good ice cream cones and hot dark matter makes good hot chocolate. No. Oh, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. Um, so basically right now, um, our theories indicate that cold dark matter is a better fit for our astrophysical observations. Uh, essentially, the reason that they're different is that particles that are traveling very fast, close to the speed of light, they behave so-called relativistically. And particles that are traveling very slowly, uh, sort of mostly sitting around in one place, behave very differently. And so when we're trying to um, 
well, first of all, when we're trying to design detectors to catch these particles, it, it, it matters which kind of particle you're trying to catch. Uh, but then um, also when you look at how they would have affected the evolution of the universe in terms of the formation of large scale structures and of galaxy clusters and that kind of thing, the two of them cause very different effects. Like what kind of effects? So if you think about things like um, how is heat transported from one place to another, um, something, something has to carry it, right? So a particle can interact with you, grab some heat, then run away and then interact with another system and deposit it there. Uh, so if you have a lot of very fast moving particles running around between systems, even if those systems are spaced, um, fairly far apart, you can still get thermal contact between those systems, right, happening by these particles running around. If the particles move very slowly instead, then they'll just sort of tend to clump and aggregate in one place and, you know, not, not share their heat or their energy with far away systems. So then with cold dark matter, you get, you know, things that sort of clump more. And then with hot dark matter, you get things where the mass energy distribution is more smeared out. Uh, and then um, you can actually tell that, for example, if you have too much hot dark matter, then clusters of galaxies don't form properly. So the dark matter that's going through me or you or going through the air right now, is that probably hot dark matter? And the... No, no, it's, no, no, it's probably cold. Okay. The dark matter around the universe, uh, not the universe, the galaxy that's clumped in the halo that you mentioned? The dark matter halo, it's cold, probably, yeah. So where's the hot dark matter? Uh, we're not even sure that there is any. Oh, <laughs> oh okay, so it's just like a theoretical or what? It's, yeah, it was a theoretical possibility. There have been various different dark matter candidates over the years, um, some of which um, have, have sort of become more likely given recent observations and some of which have become less likely. And I would say that hot dark matter has become less likely. Uh, so hot dark matter would behave sort of more like a neutrino. All of the experiments and the observations that we've made so far seem to fit cold dark matter better. Gotcha. Okay. I mean, I want to say like, I do understand it. I just don't know if I understand it. So I think I understand it. <laughs> uh, well, you know what, you are always welcome to uh, watch some of the online videos or sit in on my first year seminar course on dark energy and dark matter where we do explain some of this stuff. Um, I would also like to very briefly uh, give a plug to the experimental facility where I work, which is called Snow Lab. Uh, this is short for Sudbury Neutrino Observatory Lab. And it is located just like it sounds in Sudbury, but it is 6,800 feet down a mine shaft. This is the Ballet Mine, which mines mostly nickel. And uh, they were kind enough to let us bury a bunch of dark matter detectors at the bottom of their giant hole in the ground. And the reason that we put the dark matter detectors so far underground is that then we are shielded from cosmic rays and all kinds of other stuff that happens at the surface that would otherwise create a lot of noise in our detectors and drown out the tiny little dark matter signal that we're looking for. And the reason that I love to advertise this is that it is one of the world's premier astroparticle physics facilities. And we have it right here in Ontario. Uh, and uh, I think uh, that really um, we can be proud of it as Ontarians and as Canadians. And uh, I love uh, showcasing uh, some of the great STEM research that we have going on here. I don't know if it was the TED talk I watched or just an article I was reading, but I heard about that where there's like this lab deep underground where they're trying to, what you just said, you actually, you work in that one. That's crazy to me. Yeah. So I work mostly on what's called the super CDMS experiment. So that's short for super cryogenic dark matter search. And so we have these chunks of semiconductor crystal that we super cool uh, to only a tiny, tiny bit above absolute zero. And we bury them down there and we basically wait for dark matter particles from the dark matter halo to come wandering in and create just a tiny little vibration in the crystal lattice or a tiny little ionization in it. And we use these quantum sensors, which are called squids. 
superconducting quantum interference devices to read out these teeny tiny little signals. Uh, and this is one of the world's leading dark matter direct detection experiments. So I thought dark matter doesn't interact with matter. So how are you able to get that vibration or anything out of it? Uh, so, so we are basically hoping that dark matter has a tiny, 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 but non-zero interaction with normal matter, such that it is almost impossible to spot that, it, that, that if we have a really sensitive detector, we can still spot it. Gotcha. All right. Well, good luck. Hope you guys are able to spot something. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, where else would you do your research for the dark side than in a secret underground lair? <laughs> there you go. And for people listening to you said um can find online. Wait, where can people find that online? So if you go to snowlab.ca. Snowlab.ca. Okay. Yeah. Sounds good. I think it's a good spot to wrap up the podcast radio show. Is there any final message you want to tell the audience? Uh, yeah, so I would also like to give a shout out to EDI, which is short for Equity, Diversity and Inclusion Efforts that we are doing in our field right now to try and get lots more people from various different backgrounds, genders, ethnicities, countries of origin, walks of life, everything involved in our field in order to get a more diverse set of perspectives to advance our research. So I would really encourage you, whoever you are, whatever your background is, if you love science, even if you don't think that you fit the stereotype or the typical image of a physicist, that is all changing now. And uh, we actually, we really want you to help us change it. And we want you to come join us in our great treasure hunt. Sounds good. All right. For people listening, Dr. Miriam Diamond, thank you so much for coming out to the show. This was great. Thanks. And this is FM 91.7 WHUS tours at the top of the hour. This is The Way Podcast. Go to podcasttheway.com. And as always, deuces. This has been The Way Podcast. If you want to know more about The Way Podcast, go to podcasttheway.com. Mm-hmm.